When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, hustlers, we know that this 2024, the entrepreneurial journey is filled with challenges. An often overlooked aspect is the time-consuming task of processing payroll and managing government requirements. And did you know that the average admin spends a whopping 50 hours per month dealing with just government compliance? That's time you could be spending on growing your business, or let's be honest, taking a well-deserved break. But fear not, we got a game changer for you. Introducing Sprout Solutions and their tailored solutions for MSMEs called the Payroll Starter. With Sprout Solutions Payroll Starter, you can finally reclaim your time and get your life back on track. Say goodbye to the stress of remembering tax dates or worrying about missed payroll runs. This bundle is designed to make your life easier and your business more efficient. And here's the best part. The cost starts just at 5,000 pesos per month for businesses with up to 10 employees. Yep, you heard that right. That's just 5,000 pesos per month. So why spend another minute routing in payroll paperwork when Sprout can revolutionize the way you manage your payroll and government requirements? Take the first step towards a more efficient business today. Visit sprout.ph slash payroll starter monthly 5k. If you missed that, don't worry. We have it in the description box of this episode. So click that too. And again, big shout out to Sprout Solutions because your time is too valuable to be spent on paperwork. Reclaim it with their payroll starter. Now let's begin this episode. The Hustle Share Podcast is brought to you by Union Digital Bank a fully digital bank with a mission to empower every Filipino everywhere by providing easy access to digital financial services for consumers and businesses. Union Digital Bank partners with startups to co-create financial products to meet the needs of their customers. Contact Union Digital Bank to explore how they can power your platform with embedded financial services. For more information about Union Digital Bank, please see their website at www.uniondigitalbank.io. Stay updated by following them on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Also brought to you by Paymongo, the payment gateway for business growth. Paymongo allows your business to accept online payments from your customers through Visa, MasterCard, Gcash, GrabPay, Maya, online banking, Buy Now, Pay Later, and many more. All with just one platform. Sign up for free at paymongo.com. And brought to you by Seatcap. SeekCap is a lending platform powered by UBX Philippines. With SeekCap, you can easily apply for a loan from 5,000 pesos up to 1 million pesos from the comfort of your own home nationwide. Visit www.seekcap.ph, sign up, and apply for a loan now. That's www.seekcap.ph. Take your business to new heights by seeking capital with SeekCap. You know, you kind of discount what you see really locally because it's too close. You almost need to zoom out and say, okay, what is this trend? What's directionally happening here? How can I kind of capitalize on this? But I think it's taking a step back and saying, what is the Philippines really good at that's differentiated, unique? And that's, I think, where the opportunity lies. Welcome to Hustle Share. 
the podcast that features the daily grinds of unique hustlers around the world to show not our differences, but that our hustles are very much alike. Now here's your host, Ronster Beitiong. Welcome to the latest episode of the Share Podcast. We are finally with this guy. I've been I've met you three years ago. That's right. right. That's right. And everything that I, everybody that I've met through the pandemic and, and actually in person is like, oh, so this is how you look. Yeah. <laughs> but again, super super excited to have you not just here on the podcast, but in the Philippines in the flesh. But in Manila. In Manila. Further ado, let's welcome to the show, Mr. Scott Hartley of Everywhere Ventures. Thanks for having me, Ron. Thank you. How's it? I know again. I blame you, Rambo of Kaya Founders. Why? <laughs> Scott is a little low in energy today because the night prior they went to publishing. Well, you know, we'll, we'll have to rally through it. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever happened to the publishing at the thir- on a Thursday night doesn't really bode well the day after. You need a few hours to recover. Got my coffee, got my water, and it's all good. <laughs> all right, Scott, again, thanks so much. But again, I need to ask you the million dollar question, Scott. What's your hustle? What is my hustle? That's a good question. I guess, you know, I've always had a hustle and a side hustle and a side hustle for the side hustle. But I'd say the main hustle is uh, venture capital. So venture capital is basically raising money from, you know, third party investors. LPs. LPs, mm-hmm. exactly, limited partners. And then basically becoming a talent scout. And the yep. talent scout, you're kind of out in the world and you're seeking to find the next Google, Uber, what have you, right? And uh, you're meeting with founders day in and day out, and you're sort of evaluating what your perspective is on the future, where you think the market's moving. And then mm-hmm. really, you're more of a, a psychologist. You're kind of meeting Absolutely. real people, and you're mm-hmm. you're digging into motivations, fill, filling out kind of what drives them. And you know, are they going to have the grit and the perseverance and the hustle to stick with a big idea for how long it takes, right? And nothing is an overnight success. And that's nope. the thing that you know our media world, media-driven world has kind of, uh, you know, tricked us into believing that everything is a five-second, you know, nope. overnight success. And you really dig in on any successful founder, any big business, and somebody who's been in that hustle for a very long time. And chances are they've, you know, hit brick wall after brick wall, things that aren't on their LinkedIn, things that they don't admit, you know, that really give them the the gravitas and the the internal drive. And so I think part of what we do is uh, have real conversations with people and try to evaluate, you know, are you really going to stick with this for the next uh, five, six, seven years, how long it takes to usually build a, a big company. Regardless of how shitty it is. And again, how many times the ups and the downs, right? You know? How many get, how many times you get a concussion <laughs> <your head Yeah. laughs> on a brick wall repeatedly <laughs> over time. But again, before we talk about, again, how you guys look at the type of deal flow that you look at and, and, what type of founders you support. Scott, I need you to buckle up real quick. Buckle up. Okay. Okay. Because we're going to have to go all the way back to oh understand who you were before you became a VC. Because we're going to have to ride the Hustle Share Time Machine. Oh, okay. All the way back. <laughs> all right. And we're all the way back. Again, I want to understand what your origin story is. So two things we always I always look out in. First one is who did you get exposed to hustling first? Because I, I always say that hustling is not innate. Hustling is always some, something that we get influenced on by something or someone or a couple of people. Uh, with that, what was the early hustles that you do when you started out? 
It's a fun question. I think for me, it was probably driven by my dad, not so much in what he did, but in the values he instilled into my sister and I. And I think it was really a growth mindset. Now, having sort of read about that and learned about that, looking back, I realized that's really what they instilled in us was this notion that if you work hard, you can get better and you can do things that you didn't think were possible. And so the first, I think the first incarnation of that for me was I was nine years old and the World Cup was coming to the U.S. Um, wow. So what, the, what year was this? 1994. Okay, wow. <laughs> I don't want to put, put, put some age, okay. uh, people, people out there doing their math. But, you know, <laughs> hey, so that, that was about when, when that was, was, was going on. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea that I was going to get a million touches on the soccer ball. And wow. so I literally started, I, you know, I did the math. And I said, okay, there's 365 days in the year. If I do about 3000 touches, so those would be juggles of the ball, right? Yep, you know, yep. kicking it with my feet and with my knees and my head. Mm-hmm. If I did 3000 a day, then I would have a million before the world cup. And Amazing. so I started a logbook and I started writing every day and I would juggle and I would do little dribbles around the house and I would keep track and I would actually... How much furniture did you break along the way? You know, I broke a couple windows. <laughs> definitely broke a couple windows. I, I knocked plants off the patio many times. I used to... We had sort of a patio in the backyard and the grass like went in an L around the patio oh and I put God. the goal on one side and I would shoot across the patio over... I try oh, to man. bend it around the umbrella, you know, oh, bend it around the, the plants and obviously sometimes I'd miss. And so I got to 435,000 touches, oh counted, logged in a book. And, I, you know, I kind of I kind of gave up at that point. But yeah. that what was indicative to me was that I didn't get all the way to the million, but 435,000 touches made me such a good soccer player. You know, I nice. basically went probably beyond nine out of 10 or 95 out of 100 of my peers mm-hmm. as far as skill set and ability to play. And I realized that the barrier to entry to be great is actually quite low and most people don't try, mm-hmm. you know, and if you actually just put in the, the, the hustle and you put in the effort and you just get eight steps of the way toward, mm-hmm. toward 10, you know, you don't have to get all the way there, but mm-hmm. you still, you kind of shoot for the stars and hit the moon. Right. Absolutely. And so I think that was a lesson that I learned, you know, as a nine year old, 10 year old was that, you know, Hey, I had this crazy audacious goal. I got halfway there mm-hmm. and it still made me one of the best players in my team, you know, f- for the duration of my childhood. That's amazing. And so, you know, I think that was the initial hustle. And the second part of that story, which is quite funny mm-hmm. is, um, back around that same time when the U S uh, world cup team came to, came to California, mm-hmm. I snuck out of my house and I went down to the local Sheridan. I figured out where the team was staying and okay. I hustled my way into the lobby hustled my way into the pool and got all the autographs of all the players. And so I realized that looking back, you know, this was a 10 year old kid that figured out where the team was staying, you know, called in advance, the different hotels without the internet, you know, and my dad found me basically by the pool with Kobe Jones and a bunch of the U S soccer players getting all the autographs. And, uh, and I kind of think to today and that ability to kind of approach somebody that feels out of your league or approach that person that's, you know, untouchable, and not be intimidated by them. And I look back to that nine or 10 year old self and I realize, yeah, you know, I was never intimidated by those players. I biked to the hotel, snuck into right. the pool and got their autographs. And it's sort of the same hustle today. It's like, uh-huh. hey, I want to go meet this founder. I want to go do this thing that feels a little bit out of touch or out of my league. You know, you realize that, okay, the barrier is not that high. And actually you can go talk to those people. They're not that intimidating. They're actually quite nice. Yeah, and you just got to shoot your shot. And I love I love this, this, this origin story because number one, you had the ambition already at the very start. One million touches. That's, yeah. I mean, not a lot of people do that because most people, when they start, they let their environment 
however, what those influence are, influence them too early and then they just never take that shot. Yeah. Right? And then like, number two, again, you took that shot and then you had nothing to lose, you know, everything to gain. If And that's a lot of what entrepreneurs do, right? Yeah. You, you take that shot. If you lose, you already know what the result would be, right. which is default, whatever you are now. And then now you, you took the shot and you got what you need. But most importantly, and I resonate with this a lot, sports is such a foundational piece to developing grit, right? My origin story also was I love basketball. So I spent a lot of countless hours outside in the streets just trying to play ball. But I was very deliberate over the type of moves and the type of stuff. I wanted to play varsity ball and I wanted to be a pro. I'd never made it to the pros, but the type of stuff I was able to develop in myself, again, it's the stuff I I use now as an entrepreneur. Today, yeah. Right? On days that I feel like shit, like I I don't want to keep going it what fuels me and then more than anything and i'm pretty sure you'll do it what i realized startups are a team sport yeah you cannot win on your own yeah so you have to win with people you got to play a role but it's a team sport yes totally agree with that you know and similarly i think the probably one of the most formative experiences of my life you know fast forwarding a number of years was doing a, I did a triathlon, I did a half Ironman. And that was, you know, it was a basically two kilometer swim, a hundred kilometer bike and a Mm -hmm. 20 plus kilometer run, you know, and there's so many moments in that journey where you think like, there's no way I can, you're literally drowning in the water. And then somehow you (laughs) finish the swim and then somehow you bike, you know, for three hours and then somehow, and it was in the run portion for me where it was an out and back, out and back course. And there were so many moments of, basically wanting to quit, but not even just wanting to quit, like physically not being able to really move my body forward, having things breaking down. Mm-hmm. And I ended up crossing the finish line, but I, I had two IVs stuck in my hand and basically passed out over the line. And this was in, in Cancun, Mexico. And what that taught me, I think, is that even like the physical limits that I thought I had, I still went 10 miles further than that. You know, Correct. and I, I think that this is probably what people experience in extreme sports or maybe in the military or other things where they actually push their frontier so much farther beyond what yeah. they really thought was possible. And mm-hmm. I look at entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship, you know, and I've been in some gritty situations, not as many as some of the portfolio companies that we have. But, you know, I think that I really empathize with the journey, but I also don't have patience sometimes for for quitters because I realize nah. that, you know, I've been to that frontier and I know how much farther I can go. And I say, gosh, you know, you need to dig deep, like way deeper than you thought. Correct. And okay, and now double it again. Now double it again. Yep. Now you're getting maybe to the frontier, but like it's much deeper than you than you possibly thought it, yep. it was. And again, I'll just simplify it. Life begins that's outside of your comfort zone. That's it. And <laughs> yeah. again, regardless of how big that comfort zone has become, there's always that uncharted territory that you can push it further. I was telling you before we uh, re- recorded what we went through in Podcast Network Asia. Like I thought it was pretty gritty. I'm pretty sure I'm the, I'm the top 5% of grittiest of gritty. founders in this, <laughs> in this country. But oh my God, I was able to unlock a lot more because I just never had quit. I mean, it crossed my mind a lot of times, but it never. I never looked at it as, okay, time to quit. It's like, frick it. I'm just going to go all balls to the wall. Whatever happens, happens, but we'll plow through. Okay, now I want to understand, um, Scott, from your point of view, right? From, so you had this foundation. I love I love sports as a foundational uh, piece because I always resonate to that. Even the way I lead is done through sports. But 
from sports, how did that translate to to work? What was the first hustles that you did, and then what were what are the things that you learned from there? Definitely the motivation side, and then the other was just sort of curiosity. And I think mm. the the big curiosity I had was seeing the world. And nice. so the through line of almost every experience that I've ever had has been this goal of expanding my horizons and tra- traveling, seeing the world seen the bigger picture. And part of that, again, was probably informed by my dad. He grew up across the world um, in places like Saudi Arabia, Cuba, Bermuda. My aunt went to school in Lebanon. So we had a lot of kind of interesting family stories about living around the world. And yet, you know, my sister and I grew up in a a small town that was, you know, it was great, but it was a little boring. Uh And um, so I think sort of seeing the you know, the backdrop of what was possible and hearing the stories from my dad kind of inspired me to, you know, do every study abroad possible. So, you mm-hmm. know, whether it was living abroad in college, you know, doing internships over the summer. So I had the fortune of living in two or three countries kind of by the time I'd finished college. You know, just any any application, if there was a flyer on a wow. wall somewhere that said, hey, if you do this, write this essay, apply to this thing, we'll send you to Japan. I, you know, I would go home and, and do it. I did all those things. And, you know, part of that was... um being in a great environment like, like Stanford, um, where I went to college. But, you know, I think, uh, that was a driver was curiosity to see the world. And that really informed, you know, a lot of the backdrop. So when, when, when did you, where did you first land? If you're really just shooting your shot again, again, you're, you already had that skill of shooting your shot very early. Yeah. Where did that land you? And what what were the first hustles that you did there? So, you know, I, I kind of, experimented with different modes of, uh, you know, where I thought I could have impact. So I, uh, you know, I always, I thought the most direct way to see the world and do international stuff would be, you know, diplomacy, right? So I actually started interning at the state department. So I I hustled my way into getting a role, uh, the only intern at the U S mission to the UN in Geneva, Switzerland. Oh my God. So I was about 18, 19 years old, maybe 20. And, you know, I got to drive around with the ambassador in the car with the little flags on the, on the front of the car. And I was the only ambassador, I was the only, um, only intern in the whole place. So right. everyone else was about the age of 60 and I was yep. you know, the age of 20. So I didn't have many friends. It was kind of a lonely summer, but it was a very cool way to experience that. But I realized that I didn't know that diplomacy and having coffee and biscuits and talking about policy was really the way that I was going to have a big impact and sort of the backdrop of growing up in Silicon Valley. Yeah. I realized that there was a, maybe a faster pace that I could be moving. And that Mm. was probably closer to tech and closer to startups. So I think the first iteration was to kind of look at international, but look at it in the most direct way, which was, okay, diplomacy, diplomats, uh, foreign service, international affairs, those are all ways to see the world. But then I said, gosh, you know, this is a little bit slow pace. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's <laughs> great when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm 60, but not when I'm 20. <laughs> and so then I defaulted back to what I knew, which was tech. Nice. That's amazing. So again, the having that exposure through policy, geopolitics, and being able to see that world, this is such an amazing hustle. But now you, you're now in, in tech and you're at a pace where what you like. What was the very first, because I'm looking at your LinkedIn you're a research in Stanford for a couple of years. You, you, you joined the National Economic uh, Council in the White House for a, a couple months. But the one that you really stayed on longer was Google as product and operations. I, for you to be a Googler in 2006 and 2008, what was it like? Because it's still hard. It's harder now, but it's still hard. It's way, way harder before, right? Because of the acceptance rate is very small. What was it like getting into Google and what was the stuff that you did in Google? Yeah. I mean, so Google back in those days, I think pre-2008, certainly pre-2010, it was predominantly an ad company. And so 
post acquisition of uh, you know what became AdSense. The, that was really the driver of all the revenue of, of Google. And so I think when I joined, it was typically to work with various clients, various advertisers in different capacities, whether yep. they were on YouTube ads, video ads. Wow. Uh, and um, I basically came in supporting on the ad side of the business and then moved my way over to product. So kind of hustled my way closer to wow. the action. Okay. But the big, the big thing that was formative for me at Google was, so again, back to the, the hustle, I was three months into the job. You know, okay. I was I was a, a no name kid that got like the bottom rung, worst job in the whole place. Okay, and I basically wrote a, a white paper saying why I should go to India to launch a team. And they said, okay, you know, that's kind of a crazy idea. You've been here three months, kid. Like, go back to your desk. <laughs> and then I I basically you know I went back to yeah. my desk. I did my job for another three months, and then I I submitted it again after a, another quarter. And so they had this basically a. Ability to transition to a foreign office, but you had to be at Google for two years and you kind of had to have a business case. And so I applied after three months, then I applied again after six months, then I applied again after nine months. And by, I the, love the, by the third time I had applied, I wrote like a 20 page PDF that had graphs and like all this data backing up why the team should exist. And I'd interviewed all these people and I'd circumvented my manager like three times over and gone to the VP <laughs> and had coffee with them five times. And, you know, they were kind of like, I don't know who this kid is, but like, get rid of them, send them to India. <laughs> so they sent me to India, which is what I was asking to, to do. And I uh, ended up spe- spending a year in India, building a couple teams and had wow. this incredible experience. But again, it was sort of like, I don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. Uh, just everyone said, you have to be here for two years to do this thing. And obviously to have the kind of chutzpah to apply in three months, six months, nine months. And eventually they said, yes, I think just goes back to that kind of like the kid going to the swimming pool, asking for the autograph. You're not allowed to be at the hotel. You're not allowed to be by the pool. You're not allowed yeah. to ask for the autograph, but you just keep doing it anyway. Right. And eventually someone's like, okay, sure. Just, just leave me alone. And that's, that's a core <laughs> skill of entrepreneurship. I always say it, right? If you're an entrepreneur and you like to follow rules, you're already fucked, right? As an entrepreneur, the first thing that you're going to have to do is break status quo. And the question, is this the right way to doing things, right? Aren't there things that you, you can do better? And you need to be able to sometimes bend rules or convent, find the back door and whatnot to achieve what that vision that you have is, right? And if you're not able to go through that very first barrier, I don't care what your ultimate goal is, but you already shot yourself already at that point. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we really look for, you know, when we invest in, in companies is what really drives the return of a fund is to be both contrarian or non-consensus yes. and to be right. And so you have to get both sides of that right. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you know, if you're consensus, you're middle of the road and you're right, great. But nope. so is everyone else. Everyone already knew the answer. <laughs> and the only way to kind of be non-consensus or, or contrarian is to back the fringe weirdness, right? And sometimes that takes, to your point, somebody that's a bit of a hustler, somebody that's a, kind of a black sheep, they stick yep. out. It, and a lot of people will think that you're crazy. A lot of people that will think that you're wrong. And, you know, what I say to, to a lot of entrepreneurs is, you know, you need to have one investor fall in love with you, but you don't need everyone to like you. Absolutely. And that's really the key is, you know, stay true to your vision. It's a tricky line to walk because you want to really have conviction about what you're doing, but you also want to listen to feedback, you know? And so if you're, if you are hearing the same thing over and over again, you know, it's a tricky line because you hear about the founder that had 60 rejections and then finally got the 61st investor that said yes. The flip side of that is the person who's very stubborn and can't listen to feedback and, you know, ends up kind of running their business off the cliff. And so I think there's a nuance there of when do you really, you know, 
stay gritty and stay perseverant and, uh, and be confident in your own vision, but do that in a way that you're also able to be humble and listen to feedback. And mm. if you feel like it's not going right, be decisive and pivoting. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that I've learned over and over. And I, even this week was in Indonesia and I, I had a chance to spend some time with the Zendit founder, um, Moses Love. Moses, yep. And, you know, Moses was telling me about, we met back in 2015 or 16, YC. just about when he was in YC. Uh -huh. And I said, gosh, you know, I don't remember the business being exactly this. And he said, no, no, that was like four versions ago. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we did one thing and then, you know, we pivoted into, you know, Bitcoin and remittances and then we launched Venmo for Indonesia. And then we went to like financial infrastructure below the hood. Yeah. And you kind of realize that every good founder, when you look at it, of course, now you might say, oh, it's, it's a unicorn. That's great. You know, we probably had that idea from day zero. Never the case. Never the case. You know, and it's and it just it a lot of humility there that Absolutely. and bitter pills you're going to have to swallow because a lot of those especially the, the biggest thing that early founders will need to battle themselves is hubris you know like oh i'm right this just because i see it doesn't mean that you know you have to find a way to meander across these these things and find a way to whatever north star us because it's never a straight line right and then find a way to just capitalize as you go. But right, well, last question before we take our first break, Scott. I uh, want to understand, okay, you went to India. What was it in India that you were so persistent about? And with what you wrote prior, is that exactly what transpired when you got there? And what was that experience? <laughs> you know, so I, th I think, you know, one thing that was a formative, uh, it was really kind of a zeitgeist at that time was, was this notion of BRICS. So Brazil, okay. Russia, India, and China. Yes. And I sort of said to myself, I really need to, this is where the world is going. These are the four engines, the kind of gears of the world. I want to understand all four of these. And so mm. a while back, I had been to Brazil. I went to Brazil one time, you know, and really kind of fell in love with the culture. And I said, gosh, you know, if I could also go to Russia, India, and China and get to know these four BRIC countries, I'd really have kind of pole position or, yeah. you know, leadership uh, ability to kind of see where the world is going. And so I had this obsession with BRICS. I've never actually been to Russia. That's the one place that I've, I've not been. But I had the chance to go to China. I took a train across China, really tried to get to know it. Before going to China, I read about 10 books on China. So I really kind of dug deep and tried to understand it. And I remember actually the conversation I had with my neighbor at Google, you know, sitting at a desk, a few, a few desks away, and he was a transfer from the India office. And I remember in the Financial Times, they had this one big spread in the newspaper that was all about, you know, rising incredible India. And I yeah. remember sharing that article with, with Saurabh. He's still one of my very good friends. And he said, you know, you should, you should go. And so I think that that was the backdrop of what inspired me to go to India. Of course, when I got there, it was a, a different <laughs> world. You know, I think um, going in the capacity of a job like Google was an incredible privilege because I had both the ability to live a, a very international, um, well-taken-care-of life and to experience the kind of frontier of adventure that yep. India provides. Uh -huh. You know, so I could go home to the the apartment and I, you know, I had the job. And, um, but then I could walk outside, you know, in the middle of the night and take a cycle rickshaw across the city and, oh my God. Go, you know, take a train to another city and, and really have adventure. And so that was something that was, was really incredible was being able to explore. And out of the roughly 52 weeks that I spent in India, I think it was around 40 of those weeks I was, I was traveling to a different city. That's and so, amazing. you know, kind of look at the map and from the, the, the very top of Kashmir to the very bottom of, of, of Tamil Nadu to, you know, oh my God. to Bengal, to uh, Punjab, to north, so, north, north, south, east, west, oh everywhere. <laughs> 
and that's you know now the name of our fund everywhere. So that <laughs> it goes full is circle. amazing. So that came from your Indian hustle, apparently. All right, that's amazing, Scott. Now let's do our first week, and when we come back, we will now talk about how you then went on and got into BC. All right, from being a hustler shooting their shot to being the one being shot. Uh, in terms of shots, too. I don't know if that makes sense. Let's talk about that more after the break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey guys, I have a very, very exciting opportunity I want to share with you guys. If you're a B2B startup founder, listen up. Your ticket to growth is here. Introducing Impact24, the Philippines' largest B2B SaaS challenge. Calling all startups in their pre-launch, pre-seed, or seed stages. This is your chance to accelerate their growth. Submit your pitch to Impact24 and get ready for a 10-week intensive program to elevate your solution. What's in it for you? How about up to 500,000 pesos in MVP project support, exclusive credits from industry partners, personalized mentoring, and a shot to pitch? at SASCON PH, the country's biggest SAS conference this April. But yo, you gotta hurry up because submissions close on January 26, 2024 already. Don't miss out on this opportunity to take your startup to new heights. Apply now at saschallenge.ph. That's saschallenge.ph. And good luck and I'll see you guys in Impact 24. And we're back from the break. We are still with Scott Hartley again told us what he then did as a hustler. But again, you didn't stay hustling as on the uh, on the hustler side for long. Because after Google and whatnot, you already you did Facebook for in 2010 to 2011 for a year, right? After your uh, stint in Harvard for a year also. But I, I'll go straight to Facebook because after that, that's when you became a VC. Is that correct? Okay, so now you did Google. How did you hustle in Facebook now? You know, there was a, a big a big exodus from Google to Facebook. We saw kind of all, all the okay. adult adult supervision uh, that went from Google. So when Sheryl Sandberg, who was my right. one of my very first bosses at, at Google, so when I started all of this sort of operations part of the business was in mm. one building that was adjacent to and kind of separate from the rest of product and engineering. Right. And in that one building, um, Cheryl was the the overall top dog. You know, yep. she was she was the boss. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were three or four other people in between Cheryl and, uh, and myself. You know, it was mm-hmm. from from manager levels. And I remember I talked to her on the very first day and uh, she was just such an inspirational figure yep. that when she went to Facebook, I, I believe around 2008, 
that was kind of the signal to me that, okay, mm-hmm. the adult supervision has now showed up. The, the person who really built the ads business at Google, bringing over her, her lieutenants, you know, her top uh, other officials from, from Google. And that was kind of the signal to me that Facebook was sort of on the, the up, up trajectory. Clearly, obviously, we all used it before that. But so, you know, I, I had the chance to jump over there. May, in many ways, though, it was a kind of a repeating movie of what I had experienced at Google. And so there was a, you know, a kind of fork in the road where I said, do I stay on this path and uh, kind of go back down the same road that I was just on, which looks a lot like product, you know, and operations, maybe going and helping set up an Indian office, okay. helping set up a foreign office. And obviously the incredible opportunities in, in that. And sometimes, you know, there are some days where I regret, you know, not going down that fork of the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but I jumped out and decided, you know, I, I went to grad school, ended up going to Columbia in New York, which really unfurled a whole different world for me because yep. I hadn't ever lived in New York. And actually, believe it or not, I never really wanted to live in New York. Okay. It wasn't a place <laughs> that, you know, a lot of kids say, oh gosh, if only I could make yeah. it in Manhattan, I could make it anywhere or whatever. That wasn't me. <laughs> Jay-Z's I, I, fault. Yeah, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't really, you know, gung-ho about, about New York, but I was in India and I'd gotten into a couple schools and I mentioned to people the schools that I'd gotten into and and people said, oh my gosh, you know, Columbia and New York, that's, that's great. And so I realized from, again, back to the international side of things, yeah. if I wanted to have an international flavor in my life, that was a place that would maybe help provide that. And so that was the, the kind of the gravity for, for doing that. So yeah, you know, post-grad school, going into venture capital, it was really a couple of professors of mine that suggested it. It was a, it was a backdrop and something that I had known about since being a kid because of where I'd grown up in Silicon Valley, I actually uh-huh. knew I you know make the joke today that as a, as a as a twelve year old you know my Halloween costume was was VC. What? No, I'm, 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 of course I'm kidding. You know how does but, a VC even look like during Halloween? You know back back in the day it was probably like a button down and khaki pants. Now it's like the Patagonia vest and, and whatever people make fun of all birds. You know and uh, uh, so that, not a Colombia, not a not a, a North Face. It's a Patagonia. Yep. So, you know, that that's the joke is like as a little kid, you know, my Halloween costume was wasn't Maverick or, you know, or Goose from Top Gun. It was like venture capitalist. Oh um, my god. But so, so I'd known I'd known about the role and kind of knew what they did from, you know, soccer dads and getting kids that going around, you know, mostly their their parents that maybe had that role. Yep. But I didn't really have the confidence to go after that. It was really a couple of professors of mine, a couple of mentors of mine that said, uh-huh. Hey, you know, you've got these two key brands in your background, these two experiences that are kind of a differentiator. There's not a lot of people, especially out of, you know, the East Coast and out of Columbia that were coming out of a, a background with Google and Facebook. And so they, they kind of encouraged me to take the leap. And they said, you know, look, if you think in three to five years, you might want to go to VC. Yep. Why are you going to try to do this interim step and go to consulting or go to banking or go to something else that you don't really want to do? Just go uh-huh. do the thing you want to do and do it today. And just, you know, have the, again, that, that grit to kind of dig in and say, you know what, what's going to take. And so for me to get the job in venture, it was about 70, I think it was roughly about 70 conversations that I had. Holy shit. And those early conversations, it was funny because I'd get on the phone, I'd get, get scheduled with some, you know, general partner at some fund. Okay. The guy would give me like, you know, five minutes and then he'd usually be in the car driving like, Hey, you know, sorry, I'm break, you're breaking up. Like the signal's bad. <laughs> Click, you know, hang up on me. And after like probably a dozen of these, like I went to my professor and I said, I'm really not having any traction talking to these VCs. And he kind of patted me on the back and he said, well, are you giving them any value or are you just asking them stupid questions? And I said, I'm asking them stupid questions. And he kind of like pats <laughs> me on the back and just walks away from me. And that gave me the idea. I said, okay, what I really need to do is come up with a thesis, come up with some information that's useful to these guys, and then use that 30 minutes not to ask them stupid questions about what's a VC, how do you do it? 
what's your fund size? What's your portfolio strategy? Blah, blah, blah. Instead, what I said, I'd ask the questions for the first two minutes and I'd say, you know what? I want to use the next 25 minutes to talk a little bit about what I'm seeing in New York and highlight some of the trends that I'm seeing, if that would be helpful for you. Would that be helpful? And they say, absolutely. You know, we're actually looking at doing so more investing. India so white paper thing. Another, that another hustle. Yeah. And so the, the, the big hustle on that was I developed a slide deck that was, okay. uh, you know, 10 slides about the top 10 trends that I saw in New York. Okay. What I would do is I'd rebrand and put the funds logo on the bottom right corner as if I'd made it specifically for them. Nice. And I'd send it to that <laughs> that partner about, I, I didn't send it immediately after because it would be obvious that I had it done before. What yeah. I'd do is I'd wait like six hours and then I would send it and I'd say, you know what, based on our call, I just put this together for you. And it was enough time that it was kind of believable that I'd actually hustled <laughs> my butt off and put together this amazing deck in six hours. Yeah. Of course, I'd done it weeks before, right? And I just changed the logo. Amazing. But that was part of the hustle. And I did that, you know, probably 30, 40 times. And eventually there were a couple firms that said, you know what, this is pretty useful. Why don't we share this with our partnership? Why don't you come in next Monday? Why don't you present this to the partnership? Oh, maybe this can turn into an internship. Maybe maybe we actually need somebody to focus on this. And so that led to two opportunities, you know, two two offer letters effectively out of those 70 conversations that I that I had. And then it ended up going to, you know, a big fund on Sand Hill Road. That is amazing. Now, okay, when you're in all right you did you come in as an analyst what was the first role and describe to us the vc grind because i've talked about this several times in, in in hustle share before that you know at the end of the day the game is about deal flow right and you know as a vc it's your, in your prerogative to listen to all these pitches right of course and sift through them whatever fits the mandate and whatever metric again whatever mandate that the the the, the fund says but it's a vc's job to be a scout and scouting entails the numbers as well to listen through every single pitch and then sifting through that to pitch to an IC. And But at the end of the day, is it correct uh, that during this time, the baseline foundation stuff that you still have to f figure out is team time traction or is it more? You know, the big lesson I had when I first got into VC was I actually undervalued myself and I, and I underestimated what my role really was. And mm. So in many ways, when I came in, I thought, you know, I was uh, an associate or a senior associate or a principal or whatnot. But in fact, actually, my title was partner and I had the ability to do the things of, of a partner. Right. Wow. And so, you know, it was a very lean operation. We had about eight partners and we had eight general partners and the general partners were the more senior folks for sure. Mm -hmm. But those eight partners of which I was a part really were all equal. And I didn't think when I first came in the door I didn't recognize that. I didn't realize that because I was about 10 years younger than everybody else. And I had significantly less experience than a lot of other people, at least in my own mind. You know, I wasn't a former McKinsey partner. I wasn't yeah. a former this or that. I just, you know, had two pretty interesting experiences from Google and Facebook and, you know, a grad, couple grad degrees. And I'd grown up in the Valley and I had a good perspective. But it wasn't until probably six months in, to be honest, that I realized that I had the same authority and the same ability to do deals, the same ability to travel, the same ability to book a conference, write an article, teach a class as all my peers. And so I was kind of stunted for those six, six, first six months because I didn't believe that I actually had that power within me. And it took, um, nobody's going to explain that to you, right? There's no kind of playbook where somebody says, hey, here's your role and here's what you go do. Right. I had this one moment, probably six months in, where I'd flown to New York. I went to a conference, you know, I, I booked a ticket, everything. And I got a call from our managing partner and I thought I was in trouble. 
Oh, and the shit. manager partner said, uh, hey, you know, can you write this memo for this deal we're working on? By the way, where are you? And I, I kind of sheepishly said, ah, you know, I'm in New York. And I, I, and I defended, you know, t- it for five minutes about why I was in New York, you know, what I'd been doing, who I'd yeah. been meeting, all this. And he said, great. Are you coming back this week or next week or the week after? Just, uh, you know, let me know when you're back. And I realized at that point, like, wow, I have complete prerogative to go out into the world and find the best companies possible. And the way that, you know, your job as a VC is judged 10 years from now, right? Based on... It's not instant. So it's very, very hard to know what's when you're being productive and when you're not. And so a lot of it is about having that internal drive and that internal sort of honesty to say, hey, you know, I think this is going to be worth my time. This is not. And it's not about sitting in the office and, you know, putting in the hours um, on your laptop, you know, pecking away at the keys. Um, if, if you're writing an article that you think is going to drive deal flow and, and be a way to crystallize your thoughts, you should do that. If you think going to a baseball game with a founder to build a relationship is going to be productive, you should do that. Mm-hmm. And so it's very amorphous because you're really out there trying to find great people, great ideas, get to know people, and then help support bringing those ideas into the world. Obviously, once you build a portfolio, then a big part of the job becomes supporting that portfolio, Correct. being sort of the in-house um, advisor and consultant. You know, and then running a fund, there's a whole third piece, which is you know the internal management of your startup, which is your fund, yep. fundraising, raising money, pitching, yep. sell, selling. So there's you know three or four buckets that start to emerge. But at that early stage of VC, where I was you know employed by another fund, really my job was to go find the best companies I, I could. Got it. But how did you get over that initial imposter syndrome that you felt? Right. It's like all right, uh, I feel like again you're you're shooting, you're under valuing yourself of what you could have done, right? But through that time, because again, you spent a couple of years here, right? Three years. How did you get over that initial limiting beliefs that you were trying to put onto yourself? And how did you maximize that opportunity at that point? It wasn't as if I, I found the answer overnight. I think yeah. I, I kind of chipped away at realizing what I liked to do, what I was good at, what I was maybe better at than other people at, at the firm. You know, and everybody, what I realized is everyone has to play their own game. Yep. And so, you know, venture is a team sport. Entrepreneurship is a team sport. And, you know, some people are great at defense. Some people are great at offense. Some people are good goalkeepers. Mm-hmm. You got to play your role. And yes. so I realized that, you know, one of our partners was a guy that just, he loved college football. And his thing was around college football. He okay. did a lot of events related <laughs> to that, you know, and I, and I thought, you know, People, Tailgating. people, you know, people <laughs> said, you know, he's not working. And I was like, well, actually, he finds the best deals. He is working. That's just what works for him. Yeah. Somebody else, you know, wants to go speak on panels. Somebody else organizes 50 founder dinners. Somebody else sits alone in their office and writes articles, right? Those are all productive, but you can't sort of be judgmental to this one is good and this one's bad. And so I think, you know, now when we run Everywhere Ventures, my co-founder Jenny and I have very different skill sets. But I think what we've been able to do is empower each other to be the best version of ourselves. So she's, um, you know, very good at organizing events, very good at community, um, very good at sort of writing uh, quick quick one-off thoughts that are incisive kind of to the bone truths about venture or entrepreneurship, which really resonate with people. And they absolutely love her Twitter personality. I don't, I don't have a Twitter (laughs) personality. (laughs) And so for me, it's sitting, you know, and writing a long form piece that's uh, more thought out and, uh, you know, and I can put sort of my, my whole sort of feelings into. And so, you know, I think you just got to play, play your own game and play it as well as you can. Right. Absolutely. And stick to whatever works and gives you the most upside per se. All right. So after that, you technically, again, I just want to zero in very quickly here because you were 
again, went into government again. This time it's a domestic policy council. Is this under the Obama uh, administration? Yeah, so it basically did a fellowship. Um, it was pretty interesting around 2014 or so. Todd Park, who was the founder of Athena Health, big, ah. big uh, company in the States. Todd was the uh, CTO of the White House. And so the chief technology officer that what? Obama had, had brought in. And they developed a program called the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, which basically was trying to cycle... Uh, products and operations and, uh, you know, product engineering and maybe to some degree venture folks yeah. into government just to infuse more sort of uh, experimentation, rapid iteration, prototyping, lean, like lean government, if you will. Got it. And so for me, it was kind of a transition moment thinking about, you know, if I was going to stay at this big fund or if I wanted to go some a little bit earlier stage, kind of at this inflection point, because my prior fund was, was typically Series A and Series B which uh, is amazing, but you're writing very few checks a year. It's very low cadence and very kind of high conviction. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for my personality type and my uh, curiosity, being at the earlier stage and working more directly with founders was what I wanted to do. So the White House served as an interesting uh, transition point for me. Okay, sounds good. And again, another long, long stint you did was 2014 to 2019. You were a term member at the Council of Foreign... Again, is this their full circle moment into geopolitics and policy? What was that like? Yeah, you know, so what I learned from uh, actually one of my mentors back in the day, this guy, Jonathan Zittrain, he was uh, he's a law professor at Harvard and he was a guy that I got to do some research with back mm-hmm. you know, a million years ago. And one of the things I remember sitting in Jonathan's office and he said, look, a lot of people don't have any interests. If you have more than one, Keep those, keep those lanes open for as long as possible. Keep riding all of the rails. Don't, don't listen to people that tell you you have to pick one. You don't have to pick one. Yep. And I think one thing that I learned uh, you know, younger in my career, especially when I was at MDV, the venture fund on Sand Hill Road, is if you read an older guy's bio, oftentimes the bio you know, talks about their accolades and what they've done work-wise. And then it ends with, and he's also on the, the the board of the ballet, and he's also you know a member at the blah 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 yeah. symphony orchestra. Yep. And and nobody says to that guy, hey, maybe you should stop doing private equity and you should do ballet full time. <laughs> right? People people recognize, okay, you have your day job, but you also have these other interests, and Correct. those interests are holistic, and they make you a well rounded good person. Yep. And I think when you're younger in your career, people think that every one of those other interests is a distraction and what you maybe should be doing. So mm-hmm. I remember people kind of pulling me into the office, closing the door, and saying you know, you write for Forbes, you're pretty good at writing. Have you ever thought of quitting venture capital and becoming a journalist? And you say, no, like my job as a VC is to find deal flow. And what one of the ways that I do that well is by writing. It's an implementation of my day job, which I really enjoy. Yep. It's not as if I need to go become Tom Friedman and become a journalist. Nope. And so I think when you're younger in your career, you need to have conviction about what you want to do and then keep writing all these various rails. So for me, you know, foreign policy has always been a backbone of interest in my life. Yep. And so I've always kept that lane open. And that lane was, that was open from the time that I did, the, you know, the stuff at the State Department in Geneva, to the couple stints in the White House, to the term membership at the Council on Foreign Relations. It's always been a backdrop and it, it will continue to always be a backdrop. And Correct. I think finally now maybe being 12 years into venture capital, I don't have people kind of pulling me into, into the side office being like, well, maybe you should quit venture and like go become a <laughs> diplomat. And you kind of realize you can do lots of things and you can do them all at the same time. And Correct. they actually make you a more interesting, well-rounded person. And exactly. they, they also make you a more authentic person. And a yeah. lot of 
what really drives success, I think, in either entrepreneurship or in venture is just being your authentic self. Mm. And if I can sit across the table with a founder and they can tell me what they're interested in doing, if I'm full of hot air and I say, I really love convertible notes and I really love uh, <laughs> safe documents. And on the weekends, I, I think of, I dream about liquidation preferences. Like that, none, of that, is, none of that is true. It's all <laughs> bullshit, right? It, it, I say, no, I, I love reading the Financial Times. I love foreign policy. I love you know reading fiction. There's like a lot of things about me that are not venture. And so I think to have that authentic conversation with an entrepreneur makes you a real person. And then that's why they want to work with you, right? And so I, those those have been the reasons why I've kept all these other lanes open is just because they're genuine uh, parts of parts of my personality and things that interest me. I totally agree. And a lot of these things, at the end of the day, you're, what you're looking for are synergies in between. Because if you become, again, an expert, what you don't want to end up with is if you have a dozen interests and you're all just surface level at it. You don't have, oh, shoot, I'm pretty, I'm an expert on one of these. But if you're just you know, jumping from interest to interest and interest, especially if you're just trying to catch up with the Joneses, right? Then that's a recipe for being, you know, uh, vanilla yeah. or, or mediocre. But again, if you're passionate about something, spend time, whether there's money or not, because at the end of the day, whatever lessons you learn there translates well. So for example, for me, I, I totally resonate. Podcasting is always going to be part of my shit. I'm in year four now. I'm just ha happy I was able to find another startup doing podcasting. But I was doing this when I was doing chatbots. Yeah. It's not zero sum. Exactly. It's not. I became sum. a better communicator, way better than I ever was when I started doing podcasts. And it also grew my network. Whatever I learned here always translated to the other shit that I'm doing. Right. And I mean, what an amazing job you have to be able just to talk to talk to people and listen to people, right? And in depth, it's in, I, in I depth. learned so much from you guys over this hour and a half that I'm going to be talking to. That again, whatever I decide to do or whatever I'm passionate about, that's that. There's always a, a synergistic effect to make it better. You know, you kind of peaked something in in the past. So related to the book that I wrote um, about sort of basically the duality of humanities and technology and sort of being able to put these two things together. There are a number of examples of people that have really innovated because they were able to kind of have these overlapping things like Correct. To, your, to your point of chatbots and podcasts. Nobody yeah. thinks they go together, but if you can put them together in a <laughs> unique way, uh, you're Turns maybe the only, <laughs> only one in the world doing that. And so, yeah. you know, there's, there's somebody I met through the book process. Her name is Katie Kwan, and she basically had a passion for ballet and a passion for robotics. People said those those two things do not go together. And she said, no, I, I beg to differ. I want to go get my PhD in mechanical engineering. I want to do robotics and I want to do choreography and ballet. And so I want to teach robots ballet. And people said, that's weird. And what's the point of that? It turns out that robots actually are used a lot in hospital situations and sort of end of life care. And in, um, there's a big trust issue when people deal with a mechanical tool feeding them or moving them up in bed. It's distracting. And so, you know, if you can use choreography and from, from ballet to make them more human and a little bit more graceful, oh you can actually engender greater trust. And so she developed this whole uh, field of study that's now called choreo robotics. What? And she's sort of the founder of this of this whole field, right? And so it's a perfect example of your point. You I'm know, trying. if you have the kind of two weird overlaps, you know, maybe yeah. for me it's it's foreign policy and venture and this and that. <laughs> um, you know, there's probably some implementation of those interests that you know I think actually everywhere ventures is kind of the implementation in a lot of ways of those things because it's a backdrop of having traveled the world, having this deep curiosity, having sort of mm -hmm. been everywhere, and then this lens for venture, you know, informed by that. 
Okay, that's amazing. But before we take our last break, when I met you, the venture's name that I initially got introduced uh, by you, I mean, to you by Roland, was Two Culture. Is this your fund now? Is this your first fund? And how did you decide? They're like, all right, I've done all of these foreign policy. And again, you, you haven't really stopped. You're still doing all of these things at the same time. You're an author. And by the way, for, for those people who don't know what the name of the book is, what's the name of the book? The book is called The Fuzzy and the Techie. There and you go. It's why the liberal arts or why the humanities are kind of at the core of the, the era of AI. Mm-hmm. So as we move more and more into this world of artificial intelligence, we actually need to up-level our human skills. Absolutely. I, I, I resonate through that. Um, my second startup was in chatbots and I always say I'm not here to replace any jobs I'm trying to take the redundant stuff the rudimentary stuff so that all of us can level up and do stuff that we actually like that we care about rather than the stuff that you know that the rudimentary and repetitive at the same time okay two culture was that the first implementation of you becoming uh, a full-time VC but it's your own fund what was that like yeah, so that was the first foray. And Two Culture actually refers to a lecture that was given by a guy named C.P. Snow back in 1959. Mm. And it was called the Two Cultures Lecture. And he basically lamented this chasm at Cambridge University okay. in, in the UK between the sciences and the humanities. And he said, you know, there's two sides of campus. These two sides need to come together. And right. he, was a, he was a physicist and he was also a novelist. So he was a guy that kind of straddled wow. both yeah, of these yeah, worlds. Yeah. And when he gave this lecture in 1959, it really resonated with people. But you fast forward 60 years and we basically had changed all the names of, of these words, but we were still debating is it STEM or is it the humanities? Is it AI or is it ethics? Is it big data or is it context? And it's both. Yeah. It's both. It's both, right? And so the notion around uh, two culture capital, which we set up, I set it up with one of my best friends from college, a guy named Simon Wagner. It, the backdrop was really to invest in this intersection of human and machine and this kind of intersection of liberal arts and technology. And so that Makes was the backdrop sense. of what we started doing with, with two culture capital, which ended up being the very first check into Kumu, which is a company here in the, in the Philippines. Of course. Um, so obviously very close to, to Roland and Rexy and, uh, and the whole team. Shout out to, the, to those guys. Uh, Makati. You know, and, and, and then from there started uh, building a founder community in New York. And mm. so that founder community was a very organic process of bringing together founders and operators. There wasn't the topsoil in New York City that it had existed in a place like San Francisco where you had wave two, wave three, wave four founders supporting the next generation, you know, people that had been early semiconductor people and then early internet people and then early Google people. And then, you know, the wave in San Francisco um, means that there's so much support for future founders and that didn't exist so much in New York. And so Mm -hmm. we started just bringing together a founder community that turned into a very small fund one. Uh, we called that the fund, actually. Nice. And um, and then that snowballed into a series of micro funds and micro communities around the world, about 10 of them through COVID, which is the backdrop for Everywhere Ventures. And so Everywhere Ventures wow. became the evolution of a series of micro communities, each of which was about 50 founders okay. in about 10 different cities around the world. So the, the backdrop was about 500 founders and operators. And, um, and Love so that's, it. that's become, you know, really my, my full-time role now is, is running this community with my partner, Jenny. And, um, we have now a global community of about 500 founders and operators, about 300 portfolio companies, and, you know, obviously a very close relationship and, and sister fund in, in two culture capital. That is amazing. All right. Now let's, let's take our last break. And when we come back, we will now talk about in depth what you guys look for in everywhere ventures, how you guys do it. And then again, we'll. Talk about the type of founders you like to support. Well, let's talk about that more after the break. 
Hey Hustlers, it's time to talk business once again and we're excited to share a bit more info about our sponsors, Sprout Solutions. And again, just like what I said at the start of the episode, you should check out Sprout's Payroll Starter as you grow your own startup. Because this bundle that they have is literally what you need to take your startup to the next level as you grow your employees. And this bundle is your key to freedom, including payroll outsourcing to experts, a subscription to timekeeping and attendance software, and government compliance services. Sprout's Payroll Starter has you covered for payroll, BIR, SSS, and taxes. All the stuff that no founder loves to do. So let Sprout handle the busy work and say goodbye to lines and tax payment stress. All this for as low as 5,000 pesos. Again, that's just 5,000 pesos all in for your payroll and HR needs. So visit sprout.eh payroll-starter-monthly-5k or again, just click the link in the description box of this episode to elevate your business management game. And again, big thank you to Sprout Solutions for liberating your time for what truly matters. Hey Hustlers, wish there was an easy way to open a bank account and grow your money without the hassle of lengthy application process and income documents? Well, I got good news because today's sponsor, Uno Digital Bank, is here to help you achieve your financial goals. You can easily open an account with the Uno app in just five minutes and one valid ID. And as one of the six digital banks licensed by the Banco Central ng Filipinas, the company is committed to providing customers with simpler, better, and more accessible banking. Last year, Uno Bank was recognized by the Asia Banking and Finance Awards and bagged the title Open Banking Initiative of the Year due to the success of its partnership with Gcash, one of the Philippines' leading mobile wallet platforms. And with the Uno mobile app, you can access an hashtag Uno Ready Savings account and enjoy daily interest crediting. With their hashtag Uno Earn or hashtag Uno Boost Time Deposit accounts, you can enjoy a high interest rate of up to 6.5% per annum. Enjoy monthly payouts with hashtag Uno Earn and flexible tenors with hashtag UnoBoost. Other app features include pay bills, the Uno Virtual Debit MasterCard, life insurance, scan and pay with QRPH, and phones. And the one thing that I really love about Uno Digital Bank is they're open to collaborate with a lot of Filipino startups. I've had a chance to see the partnerships that they've had lined up with the startups that they have, and it's truly exciting to see how a digital bank like Uno can enable startups to unlock the power of fintech through digital banking. So if you're ready to elevate your banking experience, download the Uno mobile app today from the Google Play Store or App Store. Or if you want to collaborate with them, I'll be happy to give you an intro. Just shoot us an email at hello at huffleshare.com. Hey, Hustlers, I hope you're having a great 2024 so far. As you know, a lot of startups had a very challenging 2023, and hopefully things are going to do better this year for a lot of us. Not just because it's the year of the dragon, but also because our sponsor, Dragon Pay, is here to help your startups process payments in the most efficient way. Established in 2010, Dragon Pay empowers businesses of all sizes to accept and disperse payments through secure and convenient channels, giving your customers the flexibility to choose the payment method that suits them best. With over 85 partner channels, 35,000 partner branches nationwide, including QRPH, e-wallets, crypto, buy now, pay later, and many more. They also process an astonishing 15 million transactions processed globally each month. Dragon Pay is your trusted choice for online payments. And here's something to show you how legit Dragon Pay is. 
Dragon Pay was named Fintech of the Year at last year's Philippine Fintech Festival in 2020. So let's make 2024 extra prosperous for you and your startup in this year of the Dragon. For more details, head on over to dragonpay.ph. That's dragonpay.ph. Trust the pioneer, trust Dragon Pay. And we're back in the break. We are still with Scott Hartley and told us what the guys do uh, and how he got into VC. But again, the, the, this, the title of this episode is The Hustle Behind Everywhere Ventures. But before we start, again, shout out and thank, big thank you to Clock In by Ayala Land for lending us this very amazing conference room that we're recording just literally across where Scott is uh, staying. Uh, while he's staying here in Manila. So thank you for, again, Clock In by Ayala Land. It's one of the better co-working spaces. Do check them out at uh, Google them, Clock In at Ayala Land. They have multiple locations. There's one of them in here in Makati. I think they have, they're everywhere. Just check it out again. I, if we did it here, it's pretty legit. Okay, there you go. Okay, sounds good. Now, Scott, Everywhere Ventures, elephant in the room I want to know is what's the mandate? What do you guys look for? So, you said there's micro funds around the world, right? But what type of founders or what type of stages of, of startups do you like participating in? Yes. Yeah, so the premise of Everywhere Ventures is most of our LPs, most of our investors are founders themselves. And Amazing. so we have about 500 founders and operators, typically of companies from you know seed all the way through IPO, who have had some liquidity events in, okay. in their life and been able to you know generate you enough, pay enough cash that they're paying it forward and mm-hmm. looking you know for financial return, obviously, and in investing in a fund, but also for the community and all that. Okay. So the the backdrop is is that 500 founders and operators are are investors. So we we actually focus uh, globally, but only at the pre-seed. So we're very stage specific in that we invest at the very first stage, so typically pre-seed or seed investing, mm-hmm. but we actually do that globally. And so if you think about how you focus as a venture fund, it's typically geography, stage, and sector. Mm-hmm. And you hear funds kind of pin down one of those three. They say, oh, we only invest in Germany, or we only invest in FinTech, or we only do this and that. Yeah. And we said, well, you know, actually, we only invest in the whole world, but we do it at pre-seed. And Got so- it. Um, that's the premise of Everywhere Ventures is people say, you know, what's your mandate geographically? Can you guys actually invest everywhere? And uh-huh. we say, you know, absolutely we, we can. And so we've got about 300 portfolio companies at this point. A typical check size is 50,000 to 250,000 US. Okay. Typical rounds are kind of in the half million to $2 million range. So that uh-huh. would be, you know, in some markets, that's a pre-seed. Other markets, maybe that's even a seed round. Yeah. Um, so we don't kind of you know, we don't sort of uh, hold true to exactly the nomenclature of it. Must be a pre-seed. It must be a seed round. It's more about the the valuation. It's more about the round size. It's more about getting involved in the in one of the earlier checks in the company. Okay. And uh, and typically we invest in what we call the table stakes economy. Okay. And the table stakes are really the future of money, health, and work. Mm-hmm. And what we mean by that is kind of fintech and financial infrastructure, digital health, and telemedicine that enables us to you know be healthier. At, at distance, yep. you know, but also kind of the pain points of data extraction and all the messiness of the healthcare system, at least in the United States, which is probably quite similar, you know, I'd imagine in different ways here, you know, and then the future of work, which really touches on uh, software as a service Makes and sense. kind of vertical SaaS. And now, you know, in this, in this new world, uh, a little bit of AI. 
And mm. so it's not so much the chat GPTs and all the buzzwords of AI, but really what it is, is the evolution of SaaS. It's the evolution of um, supplementing people with technology yep. to make them more efficient. Exactly. And, you know, so AI, when we experience, you know, generative AI, it's typically in a very esoteric, tiny corner of the market where it says, you know, medical billing is broken. If we took this data set and merged it with this other data set, you know, built some AI tools around that and we're enabling, uh, you know, more efficient medical billing, that would be interesting. And so that's like a very narrow implementation of AI, but that's kind of what's more interesting to us than all the the big buzz uh, around sort of something like a chat GPT. Got it. So a couple uh, follow-up question on that is, um, okay, so you're pre-seed and seed. Some startups at pre-seed are even pre-revenue, pre-product. How do you, uh, how early do you guys go? You know, so... We go, we go all the way early, but I would caveat that with um, typically, you know, venture, you're t- tiptoeing around this element of trust and how do you really validate um, an idea? And obviously there, you can sell vision, you can sell traction, you can sell team, but typically you have to be able to build trust around one of those elements, right? right. And so if you're selling traction, um, that's one thing that we back. Um but so we, we might never have met a team before, but they have great traction and yeah. we might make that investment. There exactly. might be somebody else who we've known for a very long time and we've seen their successes before. They ha- might have no product or no traction, but we back them because we believe Repeat in the team. Founders. Right. And so it really is kind of a, it's a, it's a moving target because okay. the other thing I would, I would say is we invest, I'd see venture kind of falls into a world of, you know, investing around access or investing around process. Mm. And what I mean by that is if you're coming in the front door um, of access and let's say, uh, you know, it's Roland here in the Philippines who's very connected to the Philippine ecosystem. And he says, hey, this is my best head of product. They're spinning up a new company. It's I'm putting in a check and I really believe in this idea. That's yeah. that's access, right? That's somebody that who I who I know and who I trust sending yeah. me a deal, and that's coming in the front door. If it's somebody kind of over email that I've never met before or over a LinkedIn message, that's kind of coming in the back door, and that's where I really feel like we then have to have a process where we say, "Gosh, you know, we don't have that many investments in the Philippines in this sector. Yeah. We need to go look at all ten of them that exist, and then talk to nine of them and figure out who the best one is, and then make one investment." Got that's it. the process piece, and so really, I think as a founder. If you can try to figure out, again, back to the hustle, how do I come in the front door? How do I make this investor think that this is an access deal, not a process deal? Got it. That's that's a hustle, right? And the way you do that is you kind of back channel through LinkedIn. You say, okay, gosh, you know, who does Ron know in common with that person? Can I take Ron to coffee? Can I can I talk yeah. to him? Can I get that intro and you know build the trust and come in the front door? And I think that's that's something that you know helps us validate yeah. where we make investments because it's you know it's obviously an art, not a science, especially no, at the pre-seed. Definitely, and it's super risky <laughs> as well. Again, but you you like you like doing that risk, and you, you've done this before, so that's amazing. Yeah, and I think for for venture, you know, there's kind of two risks at the very early stage you have this kind of survivability risk of yep. the company might just not work at all, <laughs> right? So you, you invest in a lot of companies, you build a big portfolio, knowing that half of them are probably going to go to zero or not yep. work. When you're a growth investor, which is kind of where I started my career more in the Series A, Series B, the other risk you have is price risk. So what are you paying yes. for this thing, right? You're overpaying or not. You're overpaying or, or not, exactly. And so I think for me, I'm less of a banker. I'm less of an Excel guy. I don't like 
figuring out exactly what the right price might be. That's kind of the growth question. Yeah. I, what I like is the the early stage where it's much more about, do I believe in this founder? Do I believe the direction they're going in? Do I believe they have the grit and the perseverance and the personality to, to see this through? And then building a large portfolio directionally that's interesting, um, You know, knowing that half the companies are probably not going to work. That is amazing. But okay, I'll, I'll just double down. And I'm doing this for the whole ecosystem in the Philippines, they invest everywhere. So these are probably the questions that are going to ask. Mandate-wise, so you already told us, again, the, the type of uh, verticals you like to support and whatnot. What about the founders and the teams? You know, I think, so for us investing everywhere, part of it is really structuring and setting yourself up the right way. Okay. And so, you know, some of that could be getting the guidance of, you know, a local fund or a Kaya founders or uh, a local mentor that can help you uh, figure out, you know, should you be domiciled in Singapore? Do you set up in a, in a way that's sustainable for international, to attract international investors? Correct. So, you know, as we invest everywhere, what's interesting is the backdrop kind of of the legal structure, the holding companies, whatnot, they're actually quite vanilla and they're usually in a few places they're usually Correct. delaware singapore <laughs> you know ireland or a, Caymans, one of the well, yeah the, there, the, there's probably four or the five, islands so uh, vi's whatever vi you, you yeah use. One, of, one of the islands you know and that that's sort of the the on-ramp that that just enables you to attract some of some of that international international money as well sounds good all right now just last few questions before we wrap this baby up because i know we gotta go as well but okay so when you look at this again i've, I've been exposed to the VC side of things, right? And this is what I always try to look under the hood now. When you guys make a decision, is what's the, what's the IC process like? Is this a, who's the IC? How do you guys make the decision? And do you like to lead or do you like to follow on? Yeah, so uh, the IC is, is myself and my co-founder, Jenny. Really sort of what we say is we're, we're conviction-led, not consensus-led. And so nice. both of us are kind of lukewarm and we, we kind of keep kicking something back and forth and back and forth and neither one of us really wants to make a decision, then we, we pass because yeah. neither one of us really has the conviction to, to say, pound the table, this is the one I want to put my name on. Conviction um, means that one of us is pounding the table and super excited yeah. about it. And yeah. it, it may you know take a few weeks of kind of, I'd say the way that venture typically happens at the pre-seed is you kind of, it's almost like water against a dam. And right. you kind of build up and build up and build up. And then eventually some water spills over. And so I'd say in a given month, we were probably talking to 20 or 30 companies. And those companies are at various stages of closing their rounds. And then as those rounds kind of start to come to fruition, as we kind of help pull together other investors, because we typically, we may lead in, in sort of optics, but typically we're, you know, only one quarter or one half of the round. And so it always requires a collaborator. And so we're always kind of bringing in a collaborative uh, local fund or friend friendly fund. And so part of it is kind of building that syndicate, building that coalition of investors. And then as those, as those coalitions come together, then a few of the deals kind of tumble over the fence. And, and so I'd say in a given month, we're probably investing in two to four companies, but not, you know, it's, it comes down to about one a week. If you look at the average over the last six years that we've, we've right, existed, right. It, is about, aggressive it is about like one a week, but you know, in practice, it's, it, it actually is not that aggressive because what really happens is we've invested in around 9% of the companies that have come through our founder network. So about, about one in 11. So if you think in a given month, we're probably talking to 40, 50 companies and then three or four kind of tumble over the line. And, and that's kind of the way that, that, that our cadence works. Okay, now I'll go hyper-focused on the Philippines. What do you see? What do you like uh, that you're seeing here? What are the room for opportunities and what are the type of startups that you'd like to see coming out of the Philippines? 
Yeah, I think I think it's twofold. You know, one is there's a there's a global market where the Philippines has a comparative advantage around uh, you know even what you do, right? There's there's a backdrop of this can exist only very few places, and the Philippines really has a comparative advantage to yep. do some of the things that you do. So I think that it's uh, it's tackling the local comparative advantage and then going after the global market with with that advantage. Yeah. Or it's looking at sort of what are the what are the tailwinds and the trends that are happening in Asia, happening in Southeast Asia, and happening in the Philippines specifically that the rest of the world hasn't seen yet. And yes. this is something that it takes zooming out because in my in my life, you know, I've I've been at the epicenter of a few trends where I've really discounted those trends because they seem obvious to me because I'm mm-hmm. sitting in the middle of the storm, right? Yeah. Facebook was probably this in 2004, 2005. You know, everyone in my college campus was on it. I started to see <laughs> other people join there, and, yeah. you know, start to work there. Uh, you know, I remember there was a Christmas party one year and uh, it was a, it was a hundred employees were at Facebook. And I thought to myself, gosh, you know, I missed the boat. That's uh, it's yeah. a huge company now. It's a hundred employees. Yep. Obviously now it's 20,000 or 50,000 or whatever it is. And so, you know, you kind of discount what you see really locally because it's too close. You almost need to zoom out and say, okay, what is this trend? What's directionally happening here? How can I kind of capitalize on this? And so, you know, maybe that's around esports, maybe that's around gaming, maybe that's around particular, you know, particular future of work implementations. Um, but I think it's taking a step back and saying, what is the Philippines really good at that's differentiated, um, unique? And I have this kind of crazy access to see this where not everyone else sees this yet. That is and that's, that's, I think, where the opportunity lies. That is amazing. Thank you so much, Scott. For, again, super excited. I wish we had more time. I know y'all got to go. But again, for, for those people that want to say pitch you or want to reach out to you, where do they go and how do they do that? Yeah, the best way is uh, so LinkedIn is probably my my default social network, and uh, yeah, I, I I write a lot on LinkedIn, and then everywhere ventures, so everywhere vc everywhere vc is our website. We also uh, have a founder spotlight that goes out once a week. You can subscribe to our Substack uh, to get basically an inspirational story about one of our portfolio founders every there Wednesday. You go. All right, and they do have a podcast as well. Okay, and we do day. have a podcast. <laughs> that day will level up soon as well. As, exactly. Uh, as we do we may or may not be getting some more help from, uh, from the king of podcasts in this region. There you go. All right. But again, thank you so much, Scott. But before I let you follow us on whatever podcast app you're listening to, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any type of podcast app. And if we did say some jargon and important links, it's going to be in the show notes on hustleshare.com. And lastly, if you want to be part of our community, just like our Poggy uh, community members, I always name drop, I won't name drop them today. Because they know who they are. But again, you can join that on premium.hustleshare.com. Again, Scott, thank you very much. Thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. All right. I'll see you guys in the next episode. Peace. 